0: Thank <music> you. week is another solo episode. I'm here alone. Um, and we are going to do something a little different. So this week I am going to be doing sort of like a callback episode on, uh, episode number 21, which was Katie's solo episode, families and intergenerational trauma. So this is going to be, this is going to be unique. Um, this is going to be new for both of us to do kind of a callback episode. And hopefully I'll be able to do it justice. Like Katie always says, and I have to agree, it's really hard to just talk to yourself, to listen to yourself talk and to not have a lot of, um, you know, feedback, uh, someone to bounce things off of. And I'm so proud of Katie. She's really been tackling these solo episodes. Um, I think she's a lot of fun to listen to. I think she's doing a great job and I've only done, um, one of these so far so this will be my second and yeah so the reason I decided to do sort of a callback episode on episode 21 families and intergenerational trauma was first of all I think it's super fascinating and I'm super proud of Katie for trying to tackle such a complex topic Um, I am shocked that she tried to uh, tackle something so complex on her own so (laughs) big props to her for that Um, And two, I think, you know, uh, I haven't really had an opportunity to talk to you guys about sort of what I do, what I do uh, on the day-to-day and like where my passions lie outside of podcasting um, and everything else I do. Uh, So yeah, I think it's a really interesting episode. I think I have a lot I can bring to the table Um, and I don't really want this to be an episode where I just uh debunk things. Uh I think this could be part of the episode. Um but I'm also here to just cheer Katie on and to just help explain things further. So that episode she did cover a lot of things that I won't be covering. She does go into more specifics on intergenerational trauma, um uh, exposures to trauma throughout families. Um, and I think what I'm interested in focusing on is a little bit more about the research that she did with respect to epigenetic, uh, studies. So yeah, uh, before we get going, I just want to kind of do our intro. Um, so we've been doing intros now for a few weeks. I think it's going really well. Um, so stories and fun updates. Um, honestly, I've been so busy. I'm not sure I have any, uh, great stories or fun updates I will say hopefully you've been enjoying seeing my face all over Instagram Katie and I have recently kind of divvied up the jobs of podcasting slightly differently and so my job right now is to show up more on Instagram so hopefully you'd like to see my smiling face all the time three or four or five times a week um So yeah, hopefully you like that. So that's a little bit new for me. Um, Sunshine Medicine this week is again, actually the gym. So Mike and I have recently decided to uh, go to bed a little earlier and get up earlier. We are, well, I'm not a great morning person. He's a pretty good morning person, but I just decided that I better get on that bandwagon. So he's been helping me get up at 6am, which has been awesome because we've had time to get out to the gym in the morning. And honestly, just time to do other things like go on a slower walk with the dog, enjoy the sun, eat breakfast together. You know, I can actually do my hair in the morning. It's actually been amazing. So yeah, just shifting the schedule. The first few days were awful. Uh, I'm such a night owl. (laughs) Any any other night owls out there? You know, I could just stay up for hours. I I don't know. I feel like my creativity, my creative energy is just so much, uh, more on in the evenings. And so it's really hard to shut that off. Um, so I'm just trying to shift everything, like shift my schedule, shift my brain, shift my creative energy to be a little more alert and a little more active in the day instead of just late at night. And so part of that was just exercising more in the morning to kind of like physically tire myself out and hopefully, you know, shut the brain off at a more normal hour of the night. Um, and it's it's been going well so far. Uh, it's for me, it wasn't exactly, you know, getting to the gym per se, just, just having movement, um, just feeling a little bit better about myself and just helping myself to tire out and, um, you know, contribute to shifting that schedule and it's been going well. So I will report back, uh, next week with Katie. And we will talk a little bit more about updates on that. See if I'm still keeping that schedule. Anyone else out there that that has that problem? Like either your creative energy is just high at night or you're just like a super anxious person. Um, yeah. And you're just, your, your brain is so active at night. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one. Um, but yeah, so maybe some people can relate to that. Let me know. Um, yeah, just reflecting on Katie's episode about ADHD last week and her personal journey. I think she did an awesome job. I was so excited to listen to it. We actually had um, a lot of feedback from you guys. Uh, quite a few people seemed to resonate with that episode. Some people even reached out to say they've recently been diagnosed with adult ADHD too. So I hope the episode was helpful. You know, it. it we just encourage exploration. You know, we're not doctors. We're not we're not pretending to be, but we're both very curious people if you haven't noticed already, and we just want to encourage that self exploration or that exploration of anything really, and we hope that that episode was you know able to spark something in you or if you've been curious and something's already being sparked in you, maybe that gave you sort of permission to check it out. you know, maybe that gave you permission to ask for help um and we hope it did, so yeah. Share the episode with someone you think uh, could benefit or with someone you want to talk about it more with. Um, So this week, what's hot? Hmm. Okay. I know what's hot. Actually, I have been so in love with the Glossier. Hmm. What's it called? It's like, let me just go get it. Okay, Um, so it's called the Glossier Glossier. I can never get it right. Glossier Lid Star. And I got it in the color Lily. It's like an iridescent, like purple color. It's sort of a shimmery eyeshadow. It's really gorgeous. Uh, I thought maybe it would be like a little bit too like flashy for me I just put a little thin line across the top of my lid and it's beautiful it just catches my like catches the light catches the sunlight and it just goes so well with my green eyes so it's kind of like a purpley color I really love it and it's actually really uh, long wearing um it doesn't smear off it does transfer up on the other side of your eyelid so you have to be really careful when you apply it and make sure it dries but um it's actually really long wearing I've, I've been wearing it all day today and um barely any smearing or smudging it. It's pretty much still there. So yeah, really impressed with that. Um, also I'm just on their website. Apparently it's cruel cruelty free. So that's cool too. Uh, yeah. So it's, uh, on the Glossier website right now for $18. I think I got it on a discount on a deal, um, maybe on the May long, uh, weekend. So yeah, I got it for less than that. So I just tried it out for that, uh, cheaper price. I recommend that. Uh, Another thing I recommend, and we have talked about this before, but I cannot get enough. So um, I told you guys a few weeks ago about a uh, sun care product that I love. So there is a product called Maui Vera. It is an aloe vera made in, I believe it's in Maui. um, At least it's a Maui based company. And they, they create this all natural aloe vera, after sun product, and it inc- it includes well aloe vera, a few other things, something called noni, which I think is a Hawaiian vegetable or fruit. And this stuff, I mean, everyone I've told agrees, it saves the most terrible sunburns, like sunburns that you would have just given up on. Sunburns that you're like this is going to peel. I'm going to have redness and burning and you know, spotting for weeks, like it saves the most extreme sunburns and it feels so amazing immediately. It's incredible. They also have a mineral-based, uh, zinc sunscreen, uh, that's 30 SPF. I have not tried it yet, but we just got, get this, we just got free samples for y'all that we will be putting in our first giveaway of the summer. So there will be, uh, in the first giveaway, at least one Maui Vera aloe and uh, mineral sunscreen. So two products for free from Maui Vera. And we, well, we're going to obviously have to try the sunscreen first, but we are already such such advocates for the Maui Vera aloe vera. And we cannot get enough. We want you to try it. We want you to spread the good word. Is this an ad? No, it's just not an ad because I am crazy about it and I am being very honest. It saves the most worst sunburns and I I am victorious. So get excited about that. Um, That will be coming up hopefully in July for our first drop. Um, It may actually be coming up sooner. We might be putting something together for our 30th episode. Um, And since we're on the 29th, actually, maybe I'm biting my tongue. Maybe that's coming up in a week or so. So stay tuned. I'm really excited for that all right so should we get into this I don't want this to be a super long episode I think I I got on on the toxic traits test I got the mansplainer womp womp So it is in my nature to sit down and tell everyone what is what and give all of the facts and give all of the information. And I don't want this episode to be like that. So I just want this to be a a couple of cool facts, a couple of new ideas. I want to discuss what I would have discussed with Katie if I was live and in the room with her. But uh, yeah, just know that I am very aware that my toxic trait is mansplaining. So I do apologize in advance. I will do my best. Um, that being said, I don't know if anyone knows. Well, maybe, you know, maybe we've said it before, but I'm a genetic counselor. Have you heard of that? Do you know what that is? Most people haven't. Um, genetic counselors are licensed healthcare providers. We have a four-year undergrad degree in something usually science-based, but not always. So my science-based degree was in microbiology. So like infections, uh, microbes, and things of that nature. I also studied a lot of basic biology, and I also studied quite a lot of genetics in that degree. Then I went on to do a two-year master's program with a clinical practice and a thesis in genetic counseling. So in that, we cover a lot of basic genetics courses and upper-level genetics courses plus clinical genetics. And we cover a lot about uh, psychology and sort of family studies and family systems. I am no expert in psychology by any means. I am not a therapist, but I do have some basic skills to be able to manage um, the day-to-day work and, and life of a genetic counselor who is always giving bad news, unfortunately. So what does a genetic counselor do? Basically, There are many different types of genetic counselors, but our role is to talk to families or people who have some kind of condition or a family history of some kind of condition. And we're looking to see if there's an underlying genetic factor for that. So what do I mean? Well, our bodies are made up of billions of cells and inside each of our cells is our genetic information that's called our DNA. And our DNA is based on four letters, um, A, G, T, and C. And these letters are the genetic code. So if we look at our DNA, we can see that individual pieces of it make up or are coded for an instruction, or they're called genes. Um, You can think of these instructions like recipes inside a cookbook. So if you flip open to, say, page five, and that recipe is for chocolate chip cookies. You can read that recipe and you can follow it and you can make chocolate chip cookies. Uh, But sometimes what happens is maybe there's like a typo or something's missing. It, I mean, you can appreciate that it makes it a little bit difficult to make the chocolate chip cookies or maybe the chocolate chip cookies just don't turn out well because of the mistake in the recipe. The same thing happens with our genes. And that's my job. My job is to talk to you about what genes I think we should look at, we should do a spell check on, and what that means when we do that genetic test. Does that mean you have a condition? Does that give you a diagnosis? Does that give a diagnosis to other people in your family? So oftentimes, I'm managing some really complex conditions that other doctors, well, I'm not a doctor, but that doctors haven't been able to kind of figure out, or they're not sure exactly what test to order. And so I work with families and people um, and other doctors, the geneticists in our clinic, to try to you know, pick the right testing and to interpret the testing and to give diagnoses. Um, my job right now is actually working with kids who have a variety of conditions. They can have early childhood cancers, they can have birth defects, they might have neurological conditions or neuromuscular conditions, or even honestly, kids with autism. So that's what I do. And you're like, okay, great. (laughs) Who cares? Well, I think it's important to know that because when I'm talking about the episode 21 Families and Intergenerational Trauma, Katie covers a lot about something called epigenetics. Now, I learned about epigenetics in school. I do talk about epigenetics from time to time in my work, but It's not exactly what I do. So my job is focusing on the genetic code. So the letters of the DNA, which I mean, they really don't change unless there's being a mistake in them. Um, And epigenetics is more like the stuff above the DNA. So it's the like on off switch to a gene. Mm. It's like saying you're making chocolate chip cookies and you followed the recipe, but you're not sure if you turned the oven on or not when you put the little dough balls on the tray inside. Um, yeah, I tell people it's like the light switches uh, for the genes. Are they on? Are they off? Should they be off when they're on and vice versa? So that's epigenetics. Um, and Katie brought up some really interesting points. So. I'm going to start by going through and kind of playing for you some clips that I think are really cool and that we can talk about. So yeah, let's get into it.
1: We're going to talk about some cool stuff today. At least I think it's cool. Ashley, this is 100% the first time you're going to be listening to this. So I hope I did this category justice because I think you would have had a lot to say. And I'm kind of wanting to do a two-parter on this because I just can't imagine how much you have to say about it.
0: Yeah. Yep. I definitely have a lot to say on this.
1: So um, let's start with the fascinating idea the concept and the science behind generational trauma. Um, so we're talking like trauma inherited from your grandmother or your grandmother's grandmother, etc. So how does this happen?
0: I think we've opened a Pandora's box here. It's a really, really cool concept, but I don't think that it necessarily happens or Mm, I should say it's not that black and white, and I don't think we're there on the research. Definitely, there is some evidence when we're talking about one generation to the next generation, but I don't think it's specific to the trauma that Katie's talking about, and I think realistically, we don't really have good evidence to suggest that it can actually move farther than that, like grandchildren and
1: great-grandchildren. So I'll explain. Um, So studies show that trauma can impact a child in utero. So such traumas can include the mother's exposure to domestic violence, lack of care, or substance misuse during pregnancy. There is some obvious ways to look at this. When we look at substance abuse, we look at, oh, you know, of course they don't tell you to drink while you're pregnant, smoke while you're pregnant, it could have developmental delays on the child. Okay, but going deeper, you know, where does that trauma and the pain from the parent or the grandparent or whoever, that, that is leading them to substance misuse, right? Okay,
0: perfect. I think that's exactly my point. So like Katie said, there's definitely evidence to suggest that maternal exposures can have an impact on the fetus. So when we're thinking about that, we're really talking about one generation. We're talking about a baby, a fetus, that's being exposed to the mother's environment, the womb. So this is a direct exposure. This is really, um, you know, the baby being exposed to things that the mother is exposed to herself and the things that are actually able to cross, cross the placental barrier. So there's a lot of evidence that suggests, obviously, that things like alcohol, smoking, drugs do have a negative impact on the fetus. Is it directly an epigenetic impact? I think some of them have an epigenetic impact. I think a lot of them though actually just have a negative impact on developmental processes. So as the fetus is developing, there are very critical time points. There are time points at a week, at three weeks, at nine weeks, at eight months. And, and so on, and different organ systems are developing. And so I think the brain is actually a good example. The brain is developing until the child is really an adult, and the brain is highly susceptible to toxic or teratogenic exposures. Alcohol is very teratogenic, and it has quite a negative impact on brain development. This is commonly, you know, this is a common cause of, fetal alcohol syndrome, which is characterized by learning delays and intellectual disability. So it's well known that these exposures, which are environmental exposures on the fetus, can have developmental outcomes. That's not necessarily an epigenetic change. But we do know that these exposures can have epigenetic changes. And let's talk a little bit more about that. Okay, so before we talk about epigenetic changes in the fetus, I just want to give you some context. If we're talking about epigenetic changes, we should probably think a little bit more about adults first. So it's actually fairly well documented that epigenetics can change for an adult over the course of their life. Um, I'm not talking about complex epigenetic disorders like Prader-Willi syndrome Angelman syndrome, Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome, or Russell Silver syndrome, which are all caused by some kind of genetic change that's responsible for controlling how the epigenetics are turned on or turned off. So really, again, that is something that's actually inherited. I'm talking more about some kind of exposure that just changes how the genes are turned on or turned off, those light switches that I told you about before. So there's actually an article by McCartney et al. It's from 2018 and it's called Epigenetic Signatures of Starting and Stopping Smoking. Okay, so in this study, they looked at groups of smokers uh, who were heavy smokers, smokers who were less heavy smokers and people who never smoked. They looked at their profile, their epigenetic profile. So they looked at the markers, uh, the switches, the on-off switches to see what uh, overall they could uh, characterize them as. So were there similarities within these groups and between these groups? They saw a similar profile in the group of the heavy smokers. They saw a different profile, but similar within the group of the moderate smokers. And they saw a different profile again for the people who had never smoked. And what was interesting was, is that they looked at individuals um, after a two-year time period since quitting smoking. And it actually took uh, that time before the majority of the heavy uh, smoking category uh, participants had epigenetic profiles that were more strongly resembling those of the group that never smoked. So I think there's definitely some evidence that there's a correlation between toxic exposures like smoking and changes in our epigenetic profile over time in adults. Now, I think this is a good place to stop and caution you that correlation or an association is not causation. So while we're on the topic of smoking, I think a good example is that you could say that people who carry lighters in their pockets are more likely to have lung cancer. Uh, Maybe. (laughs) I think you may find that there's an association between people who carry lighters in their pockets and lung cancer. But I think you're more likely to find a correlation between people who smoke cigarettes, thus carry a lighter in their pocket, and lung cancer. So you can appreciate that correlation or association is not always causation. And I think that's a problem with a lot of these studies. A lot of these studies that I looked at are correlation studies. They seem to see some kind of association, but they don't necessarily definitively
1: causation. All right, back to the fetus. So um, I will read a little bit from this 2009 study. Um, I think you guys will like this. So the the study examined three groups of rats. One group was put through a series of stress-inducing activities two weeks before mating, allowing the female time to recover before becoming pregnant. The second group was treated similarly over the course of a week immediately prior to mating, and third, control group, were not given any form of stress. When the rat's offspring reached maturity at 60 days, the researchers examined their emotional behavior, anxiety, depression, and social behavior. The main finding revealed that trauma experienced by the females prior to conception had varied effects on the offspring. Um, So these effects varied between the groups between male and female offspring, But the behavior was, without a doubt, different from the rats of the control group. So this is what I was saying a minute ago where trauma comes in varying degrees. So, right. Interesting. But again, I think
0: maybe not for people. People are complex and it could be underlying genetic components. And it could be the product of just the early life exposures for the child. But again, I'm not sure, because I'm not sure I've seen those studies in humans. It can be seen in mice. So there is definitely a study I know where mice were conditioned to be fearful of, I think it was the smell of rose petals or something, uh, because every time they smelled that, they received a shock. And they found that their offspring... um, who were conceived after that experiment actually had the same outcomes. They were also afraid. They also got nervous when they smelled the rose petals, even though they had never received a shock. So I do think that that has been seen in most models, and I'm pretty sure that we can see epigenetic changes passing from generation to generation to generation, but I'm not sure it's being done or is so black and white with people. Okay, so what does this look like when we're talking about this so-called intergenerational epigenetic change? Um, so, let's start first by talking about one generation, like I did before. The fetus, the baby, is within the mother. That, therefore, we know that's one generation and we know that that baby is exposed to the environment within the mother. So perhaps it works just like in the adult, there's an exposure and it has an impact on the epigenome. So again, not necessarily a a form of inheriting the epigenetic change, but rather maybe the result of some kind of exposure in a more direct way. So there's actually proof to show that individuals, so mothers, who have some kind of um, atypical, uh, well, some kind of neurological disorder, for example, depression, they do have an increased rate of having a child with adverse outcomes. So for example, this is a study that i was reading it's actually a systematic review um, by jehan et al from 2021 so a systematic review is a very comprehensive look at several expert papers in the field Um, and they basically talk about the fact that uh, in groups of individuals so they looked at um, studies that looked at mothers with depression Who were either medicated or unmedicated and the outcomes for their children and they actually found that uh, there was an association with untreated depression during pregnancy and uh, preterm birth low birth weights small babies for their gestational age postpartum depression and poor infant neurodevelopmental outcomes so for example example, autism, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, anxiety, and depression. Now, although I really like the idea that Katie uh, proposed that basically we could uh, explain any any negative um, life experiences or uh, mental health conditions on the epigenetic change impact that it has on the fetus, I, I've i had a hard time finding that to be the case. And I think this is, again, a good example. So the authors of multiple studies in this systematic review actually argue that the impact of unmanaged depression might actually have its effect through different hormonal reactions. So they talk about the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal system. So really in short terms, this might be an imbalance in hormones in the mother, especially an increase in cortisol levels that could have a negative impact on the developing fetal brain or other organ systems in the fetus. So again, maybe it's more of an exposure uh, and less of some kind of inherited epigenetic mark. Very, very similar idea, slightly different nuances. Um, So yeah, just, just take caution with the nuances. The other thing that's important to consider is possibly the mothers already have some moderate increases in genetic changes, small genetic factors or lifestyle exposures that are putting their children at an increased risk for these adverse outcomes as well. Now, when we're comparing these to mothers who had depression but were managed with medication, I'm not sure that part of the argument of mine would hold up, but you get the idea. So why then was it that there was actually a moderately higher risk for autism spectrum disorder in women who had depression and were treated compared to those who had depression and were untreated. Again, I think this actually can be answered by a non-epigenetic kind of rationale. Um, Hagberg et al, 2018, who is an author published in this systematic review, actually suggests that this modest increased risk is, possibly associated with differences in depression intensity so they propose that maybe a person who has been medicated might have more severe depression than the person who is unmedicated so perhaps the genetic burden so the actual changes in the dna that are passed on to children are stronger
1: so going back to some of these studies on how it links generationally so in 2013 there was a study done on Holocaust survivors and they looked at the effects that trauma had on multiple generations so while trauma may be passed down directly to the offspring can it be passed down to grandchildren and so on? Can trauma be written into your DNA? So these questions are what led to the study of transgenerational epigenic inheritance. So what does that mean? <laughs> because you know me, I'm like, I need things explained like five, like give me the simplest definition. So this is what the internet had to say about transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. It is the transmission of epigenic markers from one organism to the next, example, parent to child, that affects the traits of offspring without altering the primary structure of DNA. So basically boiling it down to what can be passed down that is not your eye color, your hair color, things of that such. So it's a little bit more complex. And I also believe from my research that Epigenetic studies are newly recognized studies. These are, um, they weren't, they weren't well recognized until recently, or at least well studied or um, looked at like an actual science. I could not agree more. This
0: is so true. These studies on epigenetics are... (laughs) I mean, it's exploding right now, but I've got to say a lot of literature conflicts with old literature, conflicts with recent literature, different researchers propose different things all the time. A lot of these things are a little bit premature. They're in the, I don't know, theory development stage. And like I said before, a lot of literature is really telling us about associations and we haven't really found correlation that is truly a causal effect. Um, I don't think we're completely confused by the research. I think a lot of things have been solidified, but again, it's just not that black and white. Uh, with respect to the definition of epigenetics, yes, absolutely. Um, so what I think I want to cover now is... Well, something that's probably going to really break the bank on um, can things move intergenerationally. So, in human gamete development, gametes are sperm or egg, there is a reset. There is a time when eggs and sperm cells are maturing. During a period of that time, the Entire or almost the entire epigenetic set of markers are removed. They are reset during that time. So before you're even born, your epigenetic markers—they have to be reset. You cannot have um, boys inheriting mother's epigenetic markers and not being able to reset themselves as males. Um, This is actually kind of a common cause of very severe intellectual disability, again, conditions I'm not going to get into, but basically they are inherited genetic conditions due to disorders of the on-off switches. So the epigenetic marks have to be reset and they're reset early on. So really the idea of epigenetic markers being inherited through more than one generation is Quite confusing. I'm not sure it can happen. The only way I can see this happening is from that direct exposure of a fetus being inside the womb. Okay, convoluted thought here. If we're going with direct exposure, you can appreciate that, say, there's a baby inside a mother and inside that baby are some kind of gametes, either premature sperm cells or egg cells that are developing. If we call the mother the first generation, we call the fetus the second generation, and we call those egg or sperm cells inside the fetus the third generation, all of those generations are being exposed to that maternal environment. So perhaps through those exposures, we're getting some kind of generational transmission of effect but for the fourth generation the great grandchild I don't think that's possible well maybe maybe it is but I don't think it's common and like I said not every single epigenetic mark is reset but almost all of them are (sighs) so I don't know Okay. So the Holocaust paper, this is actually a very widely contested paper, um, for a number of reasons. There's a podcast that I listened to recently. It's called epigenetics, an introduction and it's by Dr. Nessa Carey. I will link that in the show notes. She covers this very, very well in her assessment. uh, she says that basically this is an association study again, not a correlation she further comments that the epigenetic changes that we see are actually completely different for the parents who underwent the Holocaust trauma and their children. I took a look and I agree. The epigenetic changes are the opposite for parents than they are for their offspring. So although there is a correlation with differences in the epigenetic marks as compared to a control study, there doesn't really seem to be any evidence that the epigenetic changes are associated with a the changes their parents have which would probably be a pretty big uh, important factor in making this association and b they aren't actually correlated to the trauma at all so again i really want to believe this but I
1: don't think the literature holds up here. So I want to read a little bit of of this 2013 study for you on the the tests that they made. So uh, one of the first epigenetic studies on human beings was being carried out in northern Sweden. They found that overeating as a youngster could initiate a biological chain of events that would lead one's grandchildren to die decades earlier than their peers did. Thus, as it was shown, perhaps for the first time, that a famine or overeating at critical times in the lives of grandparents could influence the life expectancy of grandchildren. Okay, and then the next uh, piece says, in their efforts to replicate this astounding finding, they conducted another transgenerational study which showed that sons of men who smoke in pre-puberty were found to be at higher risk for obesity and other health problems than sons of non-smoking fathers. Much later, a series of unique post-mortem studies on the brains of men who had committed suicide in Canada found that the chemical coatings on genes seemed to be influenced by the exposure to childhood abuse. So all to say that that, that is what led them to the study and the conclusion that yes, Trauma can be passed down and it doesn't need to be written in your DNA like your eye color is. So I find that quite fascinating. And I'll link those studies down below so you guys can read a little bit more into it.
0: Okay, the famine study is like a mainstay, I feel like, for anyone who's studying epigenetics. Um, So there's been multiple famines that have been studied. The Swedish and the Dutch famines, um, especially the Dutch famine of 1944 to 1945, Um, They found that basically adults had adverse outcomes when they were the fetuses, feti, of women who um, had exposed them in utero to the famine. Um, But it was really only those who were exposed during the first half of gestation, not those exposed in the third trimester or early postnatal period. Um, Also, it's specific to certain kind of epigenetic changes that were altered. And yes, they did actually see that there was an effect on grandchildren. So again, I'm not sure exactly how this works because I said before that the epigenetic changes are generally wiped clean when the gamete cells, the germline cells, the egg or the sperm are developing. But they propose that perhaps The grandchildren are included in this transgenerational effect because they are prenatally exposed directly. So the fetus in the mother and the fetal uh, sperm and egg cells um, inside the fetus uh, is the third generation. So perhaps there are certain epigenetic marks that escape that wipe clean, clean slate process when they're developing and they are subject to these changes.
1: Yeah, so all all this to say there can be a lot that we overlook in ourselves and in others that is genuine discomfort or or genuine anxiety or depression or whatnot through something that they cannot a person cannot or was not responsible for and so I think the way that I think about this is like, you really don't know what somebody has gone through. And not only that, you don't know what their mother went through or their grandmother went through or, you know, so on. And and we can share a pain unintentionally and we don't always give people the freedom to overcome some of those struggles that maybe they're not even aware of. So I guess like golden rule, be nice to everybody, right? You never know, but also be nicer to yourself because you might not be able to explain the things that you struggle with internally or that give you anxiety or make you feel bad, to put it plainly. You don't have to explain it, right? Right? It, it can be unexplainable because it's literally ingrained in you. Now, <laughs> what would Ashley say right here? Ashley would probably pull out some really awesome statistics. She would probably pull out some lecture that she heard, you know, when she was in school. She would probably pull out a case or two that would relate to this in some way. She might even share her own experiences with generational trauma. But... Yeah, I mean, all I think I would say here is you're
0: absolutely right, Katie. We don't know what anyone has been through. We don't know what kind of mental health uh, concern they're living with. We don't know what kind of trauma they've been through. We probably don't know what kind of trauma their mother or their father went through or their grandparents went through. And I do think it probably has some kind of impact on the next generation. I tend to think it isn't necessarily epigenetic. I tend to think it's probably from different uh, early life exposures. It may also be from you know hormonal changes or toxic exposures with that direct uterine exposure, so mother to fetus or grandmother to fetus and gamete cells. Um, I also think it probably has a lot to do with little genetic factors, so small changes in the DNA that might put someone at an increased risk for something. And I think more than all of that combined, it's probably a lot to do with environmental factors like nurture, so socioeconomic factors that put a family at risk. There may be epigenetic factors absolutely at play. And I think a lot of the evidence that Katie brought up and that I disputed and discussed today pretty much just show us that we don't know a whole lot. I think it's a really interesting topic that Katie's brought up here. And I think she's made a lot of amazing points. I hope I added some clarity and gave you something to think about and reminded you that it's really important to Criticize what you hear, anywhere you hear it, even in the scientific community. But, I mean, I also think that we can't just sit here and try to blame all of our problems on this sort of weird and wonderful little nugget of science. Um, Would I like to believe that we can explain these previously unexplainable things that bother me and keep me up at night with something so straightforward and neatly tied up like epigenetics. Yes, I would love that. But my OCD and my anxiety uh, and my perfectionism know that that's not true. And I will not rest until I know uh, what is actually happening. So cue a lifelong uh, experience of trying to figure out why something happens and <laughs> and if you're so inclined you can join me on this experience. So I'm going to link uh, the articles that I referred to in this pretty much lecture um, in the show notes I will also link the um, the other podcasts that I listen to that I really love in the show notes too. I think that doctor does an amazing job of explaining, Our current understanding of epigenetics and some, you know, things that we all fall prey to, Uh, you know, we talk about the correlation causation fallacy. Uh, We talk about the Holocaust article that got a lot of attention. And, and you know, she also covers some just common descriptions and gives us some, some really good information to go off of. So check her out too. Um, If you're curious, like Katie and I, and you want to join this conversation, I encourage you to, if you happen to be an epigeneticist, I implore you to do the third, the third episode here, do another callback because I will be the first to admit that I don't know pretty much anything about this topic and I would love to learn from you. So please reach out and get in touch with us because we both want to know more. And I think in closing, I just want to give a huge shout out to Katie for taking on a monstrous topic that I don't know how she uh, did on her own and for being so bold and so brave to throw out such exciting and interesting ideas. I think there's a lot of good evidence there in her episode. And I hope that I just added some clarity um, and some pieces for thought here. So again, huge kudos to Katie. Katie mild corrections corner um, on a few things that I was able to support her on and of course if I was there I'm sure we would have had a great time discussing this back and forth. So I hope this has been informative. I hope this has been um, interesting and I hope <laughs> I have not bored you to tears but if I have you can turn it off now. <laughs> It's another episode of Coconut Grove and I'm so excited and happy that you've been here with me today. Um, Yeah, we'll see you guys in the next one.